0: Morning, good morning, everyone. It's good to say that. It's good to be back with you. I certainly missed you all, but I am very excited to be back in this pulpit, but more importantly, to be back with the people of Miriam Christian Chapel, our home, our family. Amen? Amen. Let's get started. So, what is it that creates influence? in your life all of us on some level understand the power behind influences whether that be positive or negative unfortunately as for the great old hymn writer John Newton he certainly experienced both sides of that coin positive And negative. Positive in a Christian upbringing with a mother who consistently prayed for the salvation of her son's soul and that God would use him in great and mighty ways. Negative from a perspective of a sea life that he was deeply embedded in as a sailor. Because of that negative influence... As a sailor, John Newton was so crude and so profane that he was often labeled the great blasphemer. This was the influence that was shaping all areas of John Newton's life. All of that, though, changed. On one spring evening in 1748... As he was on his ship and a great and mighty storm came upon that ship. Faced with certain death. Or the loss of the ship. It was in his lowest of lowest times. That the influence of his Christian upbringing. John Newton was able to recall and remember the words of Jesus Christ. From Luke chapter 11, verse 13. He remembered, and many of you will know the great hymn that he wrote, the amazing grace of God. In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It was in that moment where John Newton cried out to the Savior who he previously did not know, but on that moment was transformed in his heart and in his soul following that dramatic circumstance. The greatest influence And John Newton's life would be that of Jesus Christ. His mother's prayers were answered. John Newton would go on for the next, shortly thereafter that storm, there was a period of time after that storm, but shortly thereafter, the next 43 years of his life devoted to serving and preaching the gospel Of Jesus Christ. A tremendous example. Of an individual transformation. In his life. It was said of John Newton as he drew near the end of his life. As he would preach. That he would often lose his thoughts. That he would often become confused. But even in those moments, it was said of him that there was enough influence in his life that he would remember the words, I am a great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior. Amen. We all would be well to remember that influence the rest of our lives. As for Newton, he experienced the power of the strongest influence the world will ever know. The life transforming influence of a relationship with Christ. An influence that only flows forth through the blood of Jesus Christ. A river of blood that would crack. And break the thickest dam of suppression. We understand that, those of us in this room here today who used to live that life of suppression. For many of us, we understand in all of its glory, in all of its reality, the individual transforming power of the gospel. However, this morning I want us to see another aspect of this tremendous influence, of this tremendous power that even adds more significance to this individual transformation. It magnifies the transformation. Jesus Christ indeed came to save individual sinners. Yet he also came to save you for something much more than just your individual relationship with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, we read, So then you, I'll add brother and sister, you are no longer a stranger an alien, but you are a fellow citizen with the saints and are of God's household in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What was that something else? It's the church. The church in which he shed his precious blood for. He saved you to be a part of. As much as we revel, and by all means we should, in the individual transforming power of Christ, do we desire, do we pray, for the power of God to be magnified, Throughout his church. Not just his church. How about this church? Amen? Several weeks ago, we began looking at this prayer from the Apostle Paul in verses 15 through 18. A prayer that we labeled as one which was devoted to the church's. Knowledge, A desire for the church's knowledge. Throughout that message. We also identified the, the theme of the entire passage. Some of you might remember verse 15 through verse 23 is all one thought. Once again, another long sentence in the original language from Paul. That theme being that of consistent prayer for the church's sanctification, is essential. Verses 15 through 18 being for the church's knowledge. Today, verses 19 through 23, we'll look at a prayer for the church's power. In keeping with that that theme for the passage as a whole, the church's sanctification, I want us to answer the question as we seek to rightly divide the word and apply it to our lives, how do we pray for the church's power? So, with that said, I invite you to stand with me Our text to read here this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. The title of today's message is, A Prayer for the Church's Power. Verse 19 begins, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us? who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and dominion and authority and power and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Thanks be to God for His Word. Amen. We cherish it. We love it. It is a sword, which is worthy to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts here today. You may be seated. Our first answer to the question, how do we pray for the church's power, is number one, a realization of our power. Look again verse 19, I want to read verse 19 again and listen closely for the force of God's power for his church. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now as we alluded to in the introduction and as we stated several weeks ago this is one sentence in the original language that said it's understandable that verse 19 begins with the conjunction and it's simply a continuation of his previous thought in context with the prayer as a whole that said though It's clear that there's a change of emphasis. Is there not? He's moved from a prayer for the church's knowledge to that for the church's power. And oh, what a power it is, as we will see. In order to signify its extent, he uses a sort of double emphasis, surpassing, greatness, concerning this power. And I want to look at both of these words. First, beginning with this word surpassing. It's actually where we get the English word hyperbole from. Now, that has nothing to do with an exaggeration from a human perspective. God's word is clearly conveying what it is communicating, an unprecedented, an unmatched power for the church. A couple chapters over, we see Paul use it again in another one of his prayers. Look over at chapter 3, verse 19. When he says, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you, you being plural here, the church, may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You can turn back to chapter one. So at least given these two verses, one begins to see the remarkable power that is on display, this surpassing power that is on display for the church. Nonetheless, in order to paint an even more vivid picture, I want us to see the connection of this second word, greatness. This double impact, surpassing greatness. To do that, back up with me to chapter 1, verse 7. And I want to focus upon the word redemption. In relation to this greatness and this surpassing greatness of power, Is available to the church. I'll read part of this verse 7 with a focus upon redemption. And then explain its connection. Paul says, in him we have redemption. Through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, when we examined that passage... Some of you might remember we defined redemption as a ransom, so to speak, or a deliverance. That said, in this word greatness, we have a connection to one of the greatest deliverances in the history of mankind. This word In the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Was used in the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. A time of celebration. Of great victory and triumph. As they had crossed the nation of Israel. The Red Sea. And escaped Pharaoh's army. And then embarked to proceed. And proclaiming a great song. Of victory and celebration. Exodus 15, you don't need to turn there, mark it, check it later, communicates this connection, this deliverance, this redemption, this great surpassing power in connection to what we unpack today. Following that escape, the song was saying, Exodus 15, verse 16 terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Can you imagine being in their shoes in the midst of such great deliverance? And singing a song such as this, by the greatness of your arm, we've been delivered with that type of understanding surrounding the nature of God's power for his people, not just for the nation of Israel when he delivered them. In Exodus 15, but for the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe even in this church age, brother, sister in Christ here today. Would that help to shape your prayer for the church? Are we principally, that's the key word principally, not taking Exodus 15 out of context, but looking at the principles of deliverance? The power that's always been on display for God's people. And praying for victory much like the victory that was experienced by the nation of Israel. For this church through His sovereign plan God is using the prayers of His people for His people. Always. Let's never forget The writer of Hebrews charges us to come before the throne of grace. To come before the throne of grace with boldness. To come before the throne of grace with confidence to pray for power. Amen? Having said that, there's still another component Of this realization of our power within this verse. Look at verse 19 as he continues to communicate this. When he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So, let's unpack this with another contextual connection Look over at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. reads, Of which I was a minister. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. Now, What I want you to see here, friends, is this working of his power. Or in our verse 19 of chapter 1, this working of his strength by the power of his might, so to speak. Whether it's the church in chapter 1, verse 19, or the individual in chapter 3, verse 7. This is the key. This is a realized power. This is an actualized power. This is an accomplished power. This is not a potential power. Paul could have used another word to communicate potential. But yet he chose this power in which we derive the English word energy. He spoke Under inspiration of the Spirit. From God. In order to communicate with force and certainty. This accomplished power. By the working of the strength of His might. Why is this important? For us to realize. When it comes to our power. Well. In all reality, it's about understanding and embracing what's already there. It's realizing that through His working, our power, the church's power, will with certainty prevail. Jesus Christ confirms this in Matthew chapter 16. When he said, The gates of Hades will not prevail. Amen. My brothers, my sisters, you need to realize this power in your prayer life. Does this mean that the best of us, including myself, are not discouraged at times in our prayer life? Of course not. We all are discouraged at times. But this cannot be our practice when we realize the church is Paul has already communicated his desire previously in this prayer for the church's eyes to be enlightened. To be enlightened to the hope of their calling. A calling that as we continue the thought is already fulfilled in the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. He's praying this for the church of Ephesus. The spirit through his word desires that we would realize this in the same capacity. Let me encourage you again. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus Christ is building his church. However. However. We all would be wise to not take that lightly, to be warned as well. Church history is filled with churches that have come and gone. As for us, our prayer should be, as we often see throughout the scriptures, In other contexts, may it never be for this church. We need to realize the surpassing greatness of its power toward those who believe the church and pray accordingly. We need to walk in what the church already Possesses, ask yourself in light of this, will I, will you commit to pray unceasingly that this accomplished power of God will be on display for this church? Is that our hearts? Is that our desire with all of our being? That we would first and foremost love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whatever that looks like. That we would be diligent and committed to make disciples Pouring our blood, sweat, and tears into that endeavor. That we would be diligent to love one another, the body of Christ. With that said, how do we ensure that we do not become a statistic? How do we ensure that we stand strong for decades to come should the Lord tarry for His church? Well, one key is authority. And that is our second answer to the question. How do we pray for the church's power And that's number two, a realization of His authority. In our first answer, we said a realization of our power. And this is critical and essential, but even far more important, number two, a realization of His authority. Beloved, I promise you as we work our way through this text, you will see this as the lightning bolt the driving force behind it all. Look with me at the first half of verse 20. He says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, notice, right before, he unleashes the epicenter of force for this ground shaking influence and power, so to speak. He demonstrates and communicates what's underneath the core of it all. We've seen this times. And times again in this letter as a whole, these two words in Christ. He says he brought it about in Christ. Two key words that are essential to Paul's overall purpose and, and theme as he communicates this letter to the church at Ephesus. We've defined it in the past relating to. The agency of Christ. What does that mean? Well, In simplistic terms. The fact. The reality. That everything. Begins with his power. Apart from any work. Of man. This is the the core. This is what's underneath. This epicenter of force. Which is what's coming. This is what drives this authority, which we clearly see. Having said that, if I continue my earthquake metaphors, what is the ground zero, so to speak, of this influence, this power, this authority? None other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ the most earth-shattering influential act in the history of mankind one in which Paul will say in his letter to the church at Corinth without it our faith would be futile this is massive authority This is massive power. That said, in order to connect some dots, look over at chapter 2. I want to read verses 5 through 7 as we consider the significance of the resurrection of Christ, which is all about the authority of Christ, which serves to fortify our power. Verses five through seven of chapter two read. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come. He might show the surpassing. There's that surpassing word again. Riches. Of his grace. And kindness. Towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see it my friends? For my believing friends. When it comes to a realization of this authority. The undertaker of darkness. Is without a soul to bury. Because Christ has conquered the grave. You who are born again. You fully realize this ultimate authority. You bow before this divine authority. You cry out, I am nothing. You are king. Why is that realization of His authority so significant? It's because we realize that our old man our old self was dead, sealed in a coffin with nothing in it but a skeleton of our will. And yet, with an amen from heaven, the resurrection of Christ validates his authority. What's more, it authenticates the surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe. A power that breathed life, as Ezekiel will say, Into your dead bones. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, he doesn't stop there. Concerning the extent of Christ's authority. As you can see in verse 20. He goes on to say and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, more than likely, this is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. One of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. In that psalm, David, speaking prophetically concerning the relationship between the father and the son, states the following. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, given the enthronement nature of Psalm 110 and this passage of Ephesians chapter 1, this is all about the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is all about the preeminence, superiority, and authority of, of Christ. That said, listen to the connection as well, not just to the second person of the Trinity, but to the first person of the Trinity and God the Father, and the song of Moses again. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 6. We hear the following. Concerning God the Father. Your right hand O Lord. Is majestic in power. Your right hand. Shatters the enemy. Makes you want to shout. And triumph and victory. Whether it's. Yahweh, God the Father, who crushes the enemy in Egypt, or Jesus Christ, God the Son, who crushes the enemy of death. Both, one in being, yet separate persons, display ultimate authority preeminence, superiority, and power. So much so, look at what he says in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, in order to see a fuller picture of what Paul's communicating here in this verse. I want us to make a couple contextual connections again within this letter. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 10. Keep your hand in chapter 1. Chapter 3, verse 10. Once again, unpacking this authority that resides within Christ. What is Paul referring to to this dominion? Far above all power. Chapter 3, verse 10 reads, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities In the heavenly places. One more, which many of you will be familiar with. Chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You can turn back to chapter one. What's more? Let's not forget the cultural context of Ephesus. Remember, there was much magic, much reliance upon the supernatural, which was heavily prevalent within this society. You don't need to turn there. But listen to Acts chapter 19, verse 13, for even one more insight. Luke says here, but also some of the Jewish exorcists Who went from place to place. Attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits. The name of the Lord Jesus saying I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So. What's the key for us to understand given this context? What is Paul communicating here in Ephesians 1 verse 21. Let's explain it this way. Whether it was for the original audience in Ephesus, whether it is now for us in the church age, in the future, or for evermore, or whether in the angelic realm heavenly Places, rulers, dominion, power, spiritual forces, or on earth. Christ is Lord. Amen. This verse represents the totality of his authority. The only one who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. Praise the Lord. The only one who triumphs over the grave. The only one who reigns supreme, far above all rule. And authority and power, the one who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Unfortunately, perhaps for some here today, you've yet to acknowledge that fact. May I ask you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. As for my born again believing friends, I have a challenge for you just as much as a challenge for myself in unpacking this passage. Throughout the past week. To quote Matthew 28. Verse 18. Verse 19. You know the passage. Jesus said. All authority. Has been given to me. Go therefore. And make disciples. My friends. In light of. Truth such as that. Do the words of Luke chapter 6 verse 46. Convict you today. When Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord. And do not do what I say. My friends. I'm preaching to myself. Just as much as I'm preaching to you. Why do we at times. Why do perhaps some of you, even now, call him Lord, Lord, and do not do what he says. All authority has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If the Spirit is convicting you today, do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. We need to repent in moments such as this. We need to realize His authority and therefore go forth in pursuit of the collective accomplished power for the church that we walk in, dear brother. Dear sister, Paul will say in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12: if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. If one member of the body is honored, the whole body rejoices. Collective emphasis power in the church so we could surely stop there concerning the full scope of Christ's power for our lives for the original audience's life close the book that's enough in and of itself amen nonetheless Paul Zeros down with laser focus. With more specificity. And our final answer. And that's number three. A realization of his leadership. A realization of his leadership. Look again at verse 22. We read, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, certainly, the totality of Christ's headship and authority is established. Nonetheless, Paul ensures this is the case. As he utilizes this phrase, all things are in subjection under his feet. The picture behind this Greek word is powerful indeed. Like a commanding officer appointing those under his charge. They have nothing to do but submit. They must submit to use the illustration of an officer. What's more, along with ensuring the extent, he goes a step further with precision. What would we expect? Considering the theme of this prayer as a whole, it's about the church's sanctification, is it not? It makes perfect sense that he would emphasize Christ's headship over the church. He wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ. Is the head of the church. He wants them to know a realization of his leadership. Now, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see something here concerning this leadership of Christ over the church, concerning the church's sanctification. And praying for the church's power. The context here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with the unity in the church, flowing into strong teaching in the church, maturity in the church. And then in verses 15 and 16, we read the following But speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together. By what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, turn back to chapter 1. And look with me at our final verse, verse 23. I'll back up and read the last half of 22 through 23. He says, And gave him as head... Over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, with the context of Ephesians chapter 4 tied into the context of Ephesians 1, here's how we can sum this up. As head, over the body, the church, Christ sits as the commanding officer and the orders have been given. We could go to numerous passages and what those orders look like. In light of our day and age, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it's pretty important. That said, the true church has only one response to the orders from her head. And it is not sir, yes, sir, but Lord, yes, Lord. Friends, when the church receives leadership such as this, she'll inevitably be filled with power. Power to operate as a witness for Christ. Power to operate as a safe haven for the sheep. Power, once again, to utilize the context of our day and age, to perhaps reject the trickery of men, men who would overstep their authority pertaining to the church. To quote the Scottish reformer John Knox, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Christ is Lord over the church, is Head over the church. Amen. Now, when it comes to our commitment to pray for a church, to pray afresh. For a realization of our power, a realization of His authority, and a realization of His leadership. This all assumes one thing that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you, Praise the Lord. I trust and pray that God's word has challenged you and encouraged you to embrace the power within the church to realize his authority and his leadership. Nevertheless, I want to close by addressing the lost. Perhaps there are some in this room that are living a lie. Perhaps there are some in this room that are living off of their parents' faith. Perhaps there was one in this room who was praying to prayer. And yet their life reflects nothing of obedience to the authority and lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ said, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. You see, all this talk of power for the church, it means nothing for you. If you are not a new creation, earlier I asked you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? The gospel is not a suggestion, it is a command. I command you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Come to the fountain which will leave you without thirst the rest of your life. Come to the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and be forgiven of your sins. Come in repentance and faith. Tomorrow is not promised for any of us. I promise you, you will find Him to be a gracious, wonderful, good, and merciful Savior. And you will realize the surpassing greatness of Of his power towards those who believe. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Lord. We bow before your majestic throne. We lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on high. For you have conquered death and paved the way. Lord, thank you for choosing unworthy servants such as us. Lord God, we cry out if there be any here today who wrestles with the state of their soul. Transform them, renew them, and draw them For today is the day of salvation. In the precious and mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.